in the investment space, it's also about your investment philosophies. And they had no real equity culture and it ended up hurting my business. But I would say looking back, it's all of those things. It, you know, when I say alignment of ideals, I guess I initially just focused on the honesty and ethics part, but it's, you know, really could be broader than that too. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, Jonathan Friedman. Jonathan, are you ready to rock? I am. Really excited to be here. Great. Well, we're happy to have you. Jonathan is the Managing Director of Consilience Capital Management, LLC. He began his career at Sanford Bernstein and Company as a clerk in 1992, moving up to research assistant to the chief investment strategist, followed by a promotion to research associate. Subsequently, he was promoted to research analyst for the firm's equity hedge fund product with responsibility for industrial cyclicals. In 1999, Jonathan joined Ulysses Partners as a research analyst. Then in 2000 and 2001, he started managing personal and family portfolios. In 2002, he founded Consilience Partners LP, where he's working now, a long, short value hedge fund with $1.5 million of capital raised. During his time managing Consilience, he had tremendous initial success with small capitalization ideas. A seed was planted. In 2004, he began to manage a separate account focusing on U.S. small cap value strategies for a multi-strategy hedge fund as an external manager. In 2009, he completely upgraded his idea generation, research, and trading capabilities to tackle global small cap investing, a whole new world, global. In 2018, he relaunched his strategy using friends and family capital on a path to once again build a standalone firm. Jonathan, take a minute, fill in anything missing from that intro, and tell us something about your personal life. Yeah, sure. Uh, so in, in personal life, I'm married. I have five wonderful children. Some are grown teenagers now. With uh, <laughs> That's its own leadership challenge. And then uh, at some point, I became a cyclist a couple of years ago. I'd like to talk about that somewhere along the, in the discussion and it's uh, what impact it's had on my life in, in various different forms. Mm. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, I saw a picture of you on a bike. Are you competing or are you just uh, doing it for fun? I would say it's more for fun, you know, social, good causes. I do charity rides and I compete at a very, very, you know, kind of basic level, but it's led to a lot of interesting things in my life and I'm sure I'll fit it into the conversation. Fantastic. Great. All right. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it before you tell your story. My worst investment ever was last firm that I worked for. The circumstances that led up to that, you know, goes back to the founding of my own firm in 2002 and my struggles to raise capital. My struggles to raise capital goes back to the nature that I was born with, my salesmanship, my self-confidence in the sphere of, you know, being a public person. You know, when you look back, you could see a whole chain of events that when you got, when you look at it in the form of a decision tree, when you have A or B, you know, certain things that happened in the past lead you to make certain decisions. Basically what happened was I started a fund, raised a few million dollars. It was really both struggling to pick up the phone and, you know, make that next call to get that next bit of money. Also just simply with time management that, you know, if I wanted to 
manage the fund well, I had to devote extraordinary amount of time to that and didn't leave much time for fundraising. There was someone who a partner in the fund that made an introduction to this multi-strategy fund and they had a lot of capital to allocate. We had a meeting. I went into the meeting, it was a quick meeting, walked out with a significant, you know, multiple of the capital that I had been managing at that point. The decision point was like this. I mean, I, I want to just be clear because as you'll see in how the story develops, and what I talk about, I don't intend to hammer the people involved in the story. It's more reflective of an article I wrote on LinkedIn, which talks about the actual title of the article. is called, If I'm Being Totally Honest. It discusses the subject of honesty. What ended up happening, if we skip forward from 2004, you know, 10 plus years, was the fund ended up crashing and burning with a whole host of legal issues, arrests, and all kinds of things, as I'll describe. But just to get back to that, it's not a, my intent is not to hammer, uh, not from an emotional point of view, although it hurt me to have worked there uh, because I lost my job and my business, et cetera. But so I, don't, you know, I want to be careful that I'm not speaking from you know, an emotional perspective, but it's just a great lesson for me as, as I wrote about it on LinkedIn, so it's not a secret. And also hopefully helpful to your listeners as some of your other podcasts on the same subject have been to me. So if I could just share the story, I mean, essentially, the, the reason I wrote the article, the reason I didn't want to just let it go was because when I arrived there, there had been some very subtle question marks in my head about the reputations of the people running the fund. Not, not in a terrible way, but just, you know, I would say not in a meeting of the minds kind of way. And I, and I think it's very important, certainly in a marriage or in a really close business relationship when you're dealing with money, to... Um, to make sure you're in a complete alignment. But that's something I didn't appreciate fully then, even as I realized that there wasn't complete alignment. And I remember clearly saying to both to myself and to my wife and to other people, the way the business relationship was structured was I had a capital allocation from, from the fund. In fact, for many years, I didn't even work at their offices. And I said to myself, you know, I'm, I, I'm comfortable with my way of doing business. And so long as I do it that way and nobody ever bothers me, um, you know, it, it could be a really great relationship. And that's pretty much exactly how it turned out because it ended up being nobody ever bothered me. Nobody ever asked me to do anything of questionable at any point in time. In fact, nobody really bothered me at all. They just let me manage the money. They, you know, I earned a nice returns uh, with a fairly good volatility. So it was actually in that respect, one of the best business relationships I've ever had. The problem was, uh, and I'll say the name of the firm, it's not a secret, it's called Platinum Partners. The problem was in, in another part of their business, because the part of business that I worked for was a bunch of portfolio managers with a capital allocation managing you know, liquid trading strategies, whether in commodities or in, in equities or uh, in, in other forms, but all liquid, you know, liquid assets. And the other part of the business was a credit fund. It was more akin to private equity. They ended up, the allegations were first bribing a, a government official to invest in the fund, which uh, some of that's been resolved already unfavorably to the principals involved. And then separately as to the fund itself, you know, the, the valuation of the positions in the portfolio. One particular uh, private equity deal, uh, securities fraud allegations, and uh, I forget the third thing might have been, 
which investors got into the fund and out of the fund. People got arrested. One day, the FBI showed up, seized files, all kinds of things. At that point, I had already been on sabbatical because my capital allocation had been pulled. But I guess in some way, you know, I talk about it and I think about it because it had a much greater emotional impact on me than it did in reality. I mean, obviously, in reality, I lost my capital allocation. Therefore, I lost my income. I lost any business momentum I had. And over that 10-year time frame that I had worked for them, I, I hadn't really developed connections with, with alternate uh, you know, possibilities. So it's you know, certainly a lesson in that too, which I write about separately. But the issue at hand here is, is the subject of, of honesty, but it's really about you know, doing business and, and alignment of business. So if you could say the worst investment I ever made was my investing this time period of my life in this choice, in this way, and obviously with this outcome, it could certainly be considered worst. (laughs) So in in that whole period, was there like a time where you started to think, okay, my hunch was right at the beginning. This is not good, but hey, I've got the capital. I'm doing my job. How did you feel like as you were in the middle of it all? Yeah, so that's an excellent question because there the were, if I recall, certainly one uh, business deal that they had done, again, away from what I had been doing uh, along the way that was also questionable, which ended up being resolved in their favor. So, you know, I held my breath during that time period to see what the fallout would be from that. Well, it ended up to be a Ponzi scheme, but they had lent money to on a secured basis to someone who had invested in a Ponzi scheme. So they ended up making out whole, but there were allegations that they had played some kind of role, uh, and it was later, you know, uh, resolved without uh, any harm to them. And so, you know, I just, you know, life went on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly to answer your question, again, this is why, you know, I could have just walked away from it, never talked about it, I never really thought about it and just moved on. But this is important to me because, if I'm making decisions, I have to question my own decisions. And that point, uh, when that happened, was certainly an opportunity for me to say, to, you know, to question the whole relationship. And, and I was questioning it, but again, it was resolved. Life went on. No investors pulled their money out. Nothing ever ended up happening. The allegations were resolved and cleared and, and everything moved on. So, uh, but that's a great, great insight on your part. But, but when, it, you know, when it came to the end or along the way, there was nothing that happened along the way that indicated to me really about what the ultimate outcome was because my business was isolated in, in such a silo where I focused only on the capital that I managed. I didn't deal with any of the of the clients or the investors or the partners, even the management really to a great degree. Uh, so it's very, I'd say, autonomous. When it came to that, you know, looking back in hindsight, it, there weren't really any signals to indicate the, the severity of what ended up happening. One other question I have is, um, what about during the beginning when you walked into that office, as you described, and you walked out with an allocation of capital, which is the dream for everybody, you know, in your position, uh, my position, yeah. someone who's trying to manage money. Any conceivable point that you could have said to yourself, I'm not taking this? Or is that just unrealistic? I mean, it's nice to say, oh, well, when you get in a situation and you have a little bit of doubt, you know, just leave it. Well, when you're talking about a large allocation with people you don't know that well, you've got some doubts, you're getting to learn about them. But, you know, I I just, it's hard for me to see 
if you could have walked away from it at that moment? Ooh, wow, that's a <laughs> that's a real great question. I, I don't know if I certainly at the time I I considered as I as I said the way that I resolved Vandri was to to set you know, like a Chinese wall, right? And say that, you know, I'm going to run my business autonomously. It's granted it's their money. If they want it back, they can take it back. And But, you know, no, nobody's going to interfere and nobody did interfere. And so that was the, the pact I made with myself. But I, I, don't, I don't want to paint it as knowing in advance that it, it, it would end, it would have a bad outcome. I mean, there were plenty of, you know, great signs dealt with prime brokers and lawyers and accountants of great caliber. Um, we had, you know, at its high point, over a billion dollars in assets. Like it, it wasn't, it never appeared, you know, in any way to, wouldn't have given anyone any kind of doubt mm-hmm. to join and in particular this type of relationship where you're getting a capital allocation. Yep, yep. Um, so. It's not, a, it's not a question of, did, you know, did I compromise my ideals to, to work at a firm like that? Because I, I think that would be the wrong message. Yep. I think it's more a question of when you, when you go into business with people, you know, you want to have, you want to make sure the ideals match. And I think there's a subtle difference between the two, right? Because if you say compromise your ideals, you're saying you're going to conduct business in a slightly different way. Uh, because you're going to get a capital allocation and it, it makes you uncomfortable, but you're going to do it anyway. I, that wasn't the case at all. Uh, but at the same time, you know, just like in a marriage and, a, and the same in a, in a business relationship, you know, you should line up um, philosophically. And, and another thing, it's not just, I wouldn't just say, you know, honest ideals about honesty or ethics or how to, or even, you know, beyond that, how to conduct business because all of those things would be true, but it's also in the investment space, it's also about your investment philosophies. And they had no real equity culture and it ended up hurting my business because you know, there wasn't a great understanding of the, of the potential of the issues that I faced. You know, When it came to doing a global expansion, I had to do it all myself, which was a blessing and a curse. A blessing because I figured out how to do it and a curse because it you know, wasn't really much in the way of resources or expertise. So I would say looking back, it's all of those things. It, you know, when I say alignment of ideals, I guess I initially just focused on the honesty and ethics part, but it's you know, really could be broader than that too. So to wrap this up, how, what lessons did you learn? How, what, how could you list out kind of lesson one, two, three for the for the listeners. The article I wrote, if I'm being totally honest, was just to draw a very sharp distinction. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll send you a link and you can include it. In, yes, in the I will. I, I think the emphasis is, is on if, and it struck me as an expression that really is quite distasteful when people just use it as a line, if I'm being totally honest. And, and it just, you know, it reminds me of my upbringing and my father just always, you know, stressing the importance of honesty and how it's something I, I've been telling my son you know, as an example, when he goes to run an errand and he parks in a parking lot, let's say that belongs to one store and because you know, he needs a parking spot, and he's going to another store. And I say, look, that's not being honest. You know, there is a, just a sharp line. And, and for me, I was always on one clear side of the line. That's how I was raised. And so that's, that's it. That's the mm. lesson. You know, you're it. always on one side of the line or the other. Everything else, you're just fooling yourself. And, and, and this is an example of fooling myself. Wherever my line was, these people were not on that side of the line. And that was my slight 
feeling at the beginning and and obviously at the end. So, uh, so you know, so that's one, two, three, and four, really. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So let me let me summarize what I take away from your story and yeah. some of the meanings that it has to me. Uh, one of the things that that it really makes me think about is that every decision that we make has a long-term impact in our life. We may think that it doesn't, but the reality is, is that, for instance, your decision, you ended up committing a large amount of your time, of your life, to this situation. If somebody's listening and they think, oh, I'm going to start up a startup company, that decision will consume the next five years of your life, <laughs> you know, absolutely. Or if you decide, I'm going to go on a sabbatical for a month, that decision will have, every single decision has long-term implications. So if I think about one skill that we want to keep developing in our life is decision-making. It's always impossible to see unintended consequences that come from decisions. But let's just, let's just learn from this to say every decision has long-term consequences. The second thing that I get from it is what, what since I'm teaching in the CFA ethics, one of the things that I teach about is the idea that is that you need to dissociate yourself from things. If you saw, obviously, if you saw wrongdoing, you're obliged to report it under the CFA Code of Ethics and Standards. But there's another part to it, and that is dissociating yourself. And you, actually, the lesson I take from what you did is that um, it just may have been the way that you wanted to work, that you wanted to be on your own, you didn't want to be in their office. But whether that was a conscious or unconscious decision, the ability to dissociate yourself from that and keep yourself focused on doing the right thing in the way that you like brought you the ability to do your best that you could in your job, number one. But this, could have, this story could have been a lot worse if you had been sitting in their office, had been intermingled with what they were doing and gotten involved in it. Then it could have been you that was being arrested rather than just the people that were there. So I think that the long-term impact of decisions and the idea of making sure you clearly dissociate yourself from either questionable things and if you see things that are illegal that you know we're obliged to report and particularly and, and I always tell students why are we obliged we never did that most people never did that when they were in high school they saw someone cheating they didn't call the teacher and say hey he's cheating because the impact of that it was just very few people would do that socially it would have you know really hurt you or whatever and why does it matter if this guy's cheating to you in some ways that's one way of looking at it. But in the world of finance, the ultimate client is the, the ultimate customer is the client. The ultimate beneficiary is the client. So wrongdoing done by some clown doing something wrong, over trading someone's account or getting, making, not following the mandate that they've been given, those types of things are going to damage the client. And therefore, we all have an obligation to speak up so that the client is not damaged. So I think this long-term decisions and dissociate are two that I take from it. Is, uh, is there anything else I'm missing? No, that's, that's good. I mean, it, I don't know if, if, it was, if it was so stark, you know, I mean, I think, I think people in my position would have done the same. In other words, it, it, the firm was a reputable one, but you should pay attention to your sixth sense about it. And that's, that's a very subtle thing, right? Is that that was always lacking, like this feeling that, that people, I was doing business with were on the same side of the line. Well, and, that, the yeah. sixth cent is interesting because in a way, the hard line about honesty that you're building in your son is actually building a sixth sense so that when in the future you're not around and he's about to make a small little decision that crosses that line, his 
sixth sense about the ethics of that will hopefully shine a light on you know what behavior to do so sixth sense is a great a great topic yeah yeah and, and then if i could take a minute because you, you you mentioned something that triggered a thought which was you know you, you talk about decision making and there was something about coming to certain points in your life where you're forced to choose things but there's also i had a well, yeah, I talk a little bit about the cycling i had a fascinating encounter that taught me about the power of chance so I was in a barber shop in New York City one day, and I learned the barber was of Italian descent, and I learned the story. I was there at a certain time, and another client was there at the same time. The other fellow was a very famous Wall Street investment banker by the name of Joe Perella. The firm is called Perella Weinberg. He was there exact same moment, and the barber introduced me to him. And he shared with me the story of a documentary he was making about an Italian champion cyclist by the name of Gino Bartoli, who had saved Jews in the Holocaust through smuggling documents in his bike. And so I wrote an article about it on LinkedIn. That was my first article called The Power of Chance. Just by being there at that moment, launched me into uh, becoming a cyclist, uh, undertaking a number of initiatives to honor his memory, traveling to Italy, meeting his family, his grandchildren, et cetera, et cetera. So I became a very different person because of that, you know, out of the office, away from the desk, sort of letting some creativity into my life and just seeing, you know, we're just like you and I are talking, we're connecting from, you know, a different time era. You know, these types of things I, I, I would have just let slide past me. So I write on LinkedIn, I do some podcasts, I do some other things. All of this has enriched my life tremendously, away from just looking at numbers as you and I do with just the quantum mental stuff. I understand, you know, motivations, people, behavior, and all that a whole lot better as a result. That's, that's interesting yeah. because the, uh, the logical decision-making process is kind of just on the opposite spectrum of chance meetings and life taking turns without putting a lot of forward thinking into it. And those two things basically make our lives amazing. So Yeah, yeah, so exactly. Based on what you've learned from this and your subsequent experiences, what one specific action would you recommend our listeners do to avoid suffering the same fate? It's about self-reflection. I think you could, you know, you asked the question, was there any point along the way where I had, you know, that's, that's the right question because if you're a listener and you're hearing my story was, was a painful one for sure, you could sit down and ask yourself, if you're in the middle of this type of business relationship or any kind of relationship, you know, this is your chance to reflect on it. You know, this is your wake-up call. The, the whole point of these Lessons of Others uh, series, whether in podcast or written form, is to help you. So reflect if you're in this situation where you have misgivings of any kind, whether they're very subtle or very stark, and change course. Because, you know, ultimately, dishonesty never leads to anything good. And it's just a matter of time. And when it goes against you and it hurts you through fallout, even if you're not the dishonest person, but you're a company that is under, you know, undergoing some issues, it could come at a terrible time for you when you're not prepared. So reflect, then take some action when it's convenient for you and move on and align yourself in a better way. That's great actionable advice. And I would add on to something that I call zero-based thinking, which we have zero-based accounting where you may have a marketing budget last year of $100 million. Your boss says, well, what do you want for your budget this year? And you say 110 because we need 10% more. And the boss says, 
what if, what if we had zero last year? Would you have picked 110 or would you have picked 10 or would you have picked 300? The, the great thing about this type of question is that we can ask it in relationships and we can ask it in investing. And in both of these cases, we can say, knowing what we know today about this situation, if it came along and we weren't involved in it, would we get involved in it? Or if it was a stock, if we, did, we own it, let's just say up to this point, let's say it went down. And we ask the question, if we didn't own it, would we buy it now? And if the answer is no, then you've got your, you've got your action to, to, that you're going to have to you know, figure out how to take. You know, you have to have courage to, to make, you know, to extricate yourself and make that decision. And, and clearly I didn't have it. I didn't have it at that time. So there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. And as we wrap up, Jonathan, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, I, I, I want to thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, I hope that you know, it, all, it all came out right. I wanted to share that, uh, those lessons for me, to remind myself, to remind my family, and uh, hopefully uh, all of you good listeners out there, or maybe some one single person out there who can benefit from that advice and lesson. Great. Again, thanks for another great story to help all of us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.